morning. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms, the very beginning, the first and second chapter is what we're going to look at this morning. Now, by now you're already, if you're keeping up with the daily Bible reading and reading along with us through God's word, you're already to Psalm 9. So you've had some, uh, some time to marinate a little bit in the book of Psalms, but I want to look at Psalm 1 and 2 and go back because I want to give you a pair of glasses to put on every time you read a psalm from here on out. The title of the message today is How to Read the Psalms for All They're Worth. And the intricate nature and artistic nature of the book of Psalms um, should lead us to understand Psalm 1 and 2 as the guide for how to connect with what's going on in these 150 chapters in Psalms. The book of Psalms is Hebrew poetry, and it was used in many different aspects of the Israelites' life through an, an, a massive amount of history that they experienced. So you'll have Psalms in the time of David, by David himself. You'll have Psalms for temple worship, so after David, you'll have psalms during the time of the exile and psalms again when the Israelites returned. And this book is particularly set up in a way to remind the people of God that when they read it about what God is doing, no matter what era you live in, no matter what you experience, no matter what your surroundings may be, whether or not you can get up every morning and go worship God in his house, or whether or not you're thousands and thousands of miles away, ripped from your home, ripped from everything you know, stuck in a foreign land, surrounded by a pagan culture, that no matter where you are, these psalms are meant to remind you that God is still at work. And Psalm 1 and 2 sets the stage for everything that's going to come after. I called it a pair of glasses. Lenses that you should read every other psalm through um, is what we find in Psalm 1 and 2. Before we get into that, though, I just want to point out the intricacy of this book. So it's 150 chapters, and the last five chapters are an obvious conclusion, a crescendo. We stood up at the crescendo of that song earlier, and I don't know if you could feel it, but I could feel it, and it was definitely time to stand up and to sing that final few verses. And that's what the book of Psalms ends with. Five chapters, 146 through 150, of praising God. In fact, each chapter starts out with the words, praise God, and ends with the words, praise God. It's kind of a culmination of every other psalm that has come before. So there's this giant crescendo ending, this exclamation point to the book of Psalms. And if you look back, your Bibles will have divisions. There are five books within the book of Psalms. And those five books often correlate, like I said, to those different points in Israel's history where they, uh, the children of God needed to be reminded that God was still in control and God was still working and God still loved them. They needed reminded. In the great days of David, when everything seemed wonderful and, and the golden age had come and the kingdom was here and everything was going to be great, in those days... The children of God needed reminded that God loved them. And in the days of the exile in Babylon, when it seemed like God had all but forsaken them and left them to die 
under the, Bab- the Babylonians and the Persians, God still wanted his people to remember that he loved them and he cares for them. And he was intimately concerned with what was going on. And so it's a reminder to the people of God that God is at work, but it's also a call to the people of God. It's a call to the people of God to stay strong in following him. And that's what we're going to look at in Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. Two things, two lenses to read all the other psalms through. And if you remember these things, then no matter what psalm you read, if it's 3 or 145, whatever you read, you can be able to connect the message of that psalm back to what God wants you to remember about himself. It's fascinating. So let's take a look and, and let's, let's dive in right now to Psalm chapter 1. It says this, uh, the way of the righteous and the end of the ungodly. Oh, also something important to note real quick is in book one, which is where Psalms 1 and 2 take place, um, all the Psalms are attributed to David except for Psalm 1 and 2. And the implication there is that at some point, someone came when they were compiling the book of Psalms, they came and they gathered everything together and they put it together how it needed to go and they decided that, well, we need to include these two Psalms so that whoever comes after us and reads this book will understand what they need to know about God and about themselves whenever they read any of the Psalms. I thought that was interesting to know, but here we go. Uh, Psalm 1, 1 says this, Blessed is the man, or depending on your translation, blessed is the one, or blessed are those, or blessed is anybody. And I also want to point out that at the end of Psalm chapter 2, in verse 12, it ends with blessed are those. So it's no stretch to say that this is an introduction and this is the way, this is where the thesis statement for the book of Psalms is going to come up and this is what you need to know about God and yourself as you read through the book of Psalms. It says this, blessed is the man. Now that word blessed, some of your translations might say joyous, some might say happy. And those are good translations, blessed, joyous, and happy. But what we need to understand from the Hebrew is that this idea of blessed Blessed is the man is so much more than what sometimes we think. It's more than just happiness. It's more than just joy. And it's more than just good things like blessings coming into my life. What it is, is a delight, fruitful, prosperous fullness of life. This fullness of life, this best possible life that you could live is what God wants for his people. And he says it in the very first line of the very first psalm. Blessed is the man, or blessed are those. Full, prosperous, delightful, and fruitful are those who. So it starts out with this incredibly, deeply positive statement, something that God wants for his people, something that he's intimately concerned with. And then to show who the blessed person is or who this prosperous person is or who this full person is or who this person who has the best life is, he starts with a contrast. He says, this is what they're not. They're not the ones who walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat 
of the scornful. Now, I want you to notice this interesting progression. Walk, to stand, to sit. So we talk about our life path or journeys as we're on this journey, we're on this path, we're, we're walking through life, right? So imagine that you're walking through life and you have all these voices coming at you and saying, hey, here's the truth. Hey, here's what you should do. Hey, here's what you need for happiness. Hey, here's the path you should be walking on. And that's what's in mind here is when you and I, the people of God, are walking through this life, there's going to be so many things outside that are calling to you and saying, come follow me. And so the progression of this person, the one who walks, stands, and sits, is somebody who's walking along, and they hear the counsel of the ungodly, or they hear the voice and the advice of those who are hostile to God, and they stop. They don't ignore it. They stop, right? Because then it says they stand in the path of sinners. So they're walking along, they hear this call from the ungodly, and they stop and they turn and they face and they say, tell me more. They stand in the path of sinners. Sinners is another way of translating sinners here would be those who have offended God. Those who are guilty of an offense against the judge of creation. And then look, they get so comfortable with the words of the ungodly, with the ideas of sinners, that they now sit in the seat of the scornful sit in the seat means they dwell means they live they have assimilated into ungodly culture ungodly beliefs ungodly words the scornful those who actively hate god and so what it said in psalm 1 is blessed is the man the one who, the man or woman or any child of god who has the best life will avoid this kind of thinking. Will avoid walking in the counsel of the ungodly, avoid standing in the path of sinners, and avoid sitting in the seat of the scornful. And that's important, and you can see why it's poetry, right? That's how poetry works. It starts out with this incredibly positive statement, and then instantly it goes to three negatives that you can avoid. Sometimes it's easier to understand what something is when we understand what it's not. And that's what the psalmist points out here. But then he goes back to his positive statements and says, here's what it is. His delight, in verse 2, is in the law of the Lord. And in God's law, he meditates day and night. This word delight is closely tied to that word blessed. And it doesn't just mean happy or it doesn't just mean joyful, but it means a deep satisfaction, contentment, joy, and desire for, it says, the law of the Lord. And what's interesting to note um, is that the law of the Lord doesn't simply mean the Ten Commandments or any of the commandments God gives, although that's part of it. Later in the New Testament, Jesus and Paul both refer to the law of God, and then they quote Psalms right after it. And the book of Psalms is supposed to stir our souls, stir our feelings. Too often we can disconnect what we feel with what we know about God, but God created us with both hearts and minds, and he wants us to understand how to use those both in balance for him. So God doesn't want you to have a cold, distant head knowledge of him. He's not satisfied with that. He wants you to have a deep and close and intimate and passionate relationship with him. 
And that's what this idea of this delight is, and that's what the law of God is. We should love God's law. We should love his word. We should love his commands. We should love what he says to do. We should understand what he says not to do, and we should simply bask in the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly came to this earth to die for you, shed his own blood. Let the Roman Empire take his life. And what does Jesus say? I don't let anybody actually take it. I laid it down myself. I can, take, I can lay it down. I can pick it up. I'm under no constraints here. But I choose to do the will of God for love and redemption for the people of God. So I don't know about you, but if I understand God that way, that really goes a long way in helping me delight in his law, in his word. And the rest of verse 2 says, you, he meditates day and night. This person meditates day and night. Meditation is, well, for the Hebrews, for the Jews, that word had a, something we don't really think of, but this is what they did. It, it means to mutter. <laughs> to meditate means to mutter. And they would, under their breath, be constantly saying over and over and over again the word of the Lord, just under their breath. So if I was to stand here and start muttering under my breath, you might think, you might wonder what I'm saying, but then you don't know. See, I know exactly what I was saying, and I was having a little conversation there with you. You might not know what I'm saying, but if you got close enough, you would have heard what I was saying. But that's what the Hebrews were to do, constantly have the word of God on their hearts and on their lips. And so this idea of meditation is to deeply, deeply connect routinely with God's word. And if you do that with God's word, the implication, of course, naturally leads to with God himself. So then to give us an example of what this looks like, because it is poetry, then we get this image, this visual image. And I want you to keep this in mind, that this picture is of a tree, so think of a tree, but think of a tree that would have been planted in the Garden of Eden. I think it's reasonable to conclude that there is a callback here to the Garden of Eden where God started this whole thing with Adam and Eve. Listen to what it says. He shall be, this blessed person shall be like a tree. Okay? We know what trees are. We understand. They're pretty strong. We got that. But this is the kind of tree that they're like. You could walk out into the woods and find a million different trees and know nothing about them other than what you can see on the outside. But this is a special kind of tree. It should be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. The rivers here could be a link, a callback, to the rivers that the Garden of Eden were created around, right? Life-giving water. And it's, again, no stretch to look through the Bible and notice how often the idea of river and the theme of life-giving water comes up through the Bible, right? All the way to the very end in Revelation where it talks about the river of life. And so God and water, God often um, compares himself to life-giving water. So this tree is fed by life-giving water. And it's interesting that it's planted there. So when you plant a plant or a tree or whatever you plant, 
you pick out a spot, you select that plant, you put the plant where you want it, where you think it will have the best life, it will do whatever you want it to do in a certain place that you put it. And so there's this intention, intentionality here that God takes you and he puts you exactly where he wants you and that is with him, fed by the rivers of life, his life-giving water. So planted by the rivers of life and it brings forth fruit in its season. A tree that brings forth fruit doesn't bring forth fruit all the time, right? It's not instantly planted and then it's fruitful. So there's this idea here that our relationship with God, being found in the Lord, is going to take time. You should not expect to start following God in everything and you understand everything that he's saying or you can discern everything that he would have you discern. And it takes time to grow your relationship with God. And the point of our being planted in the Lord is so that as we grow, we continue to be more and more fruitful. We continue to be more and more like Jesus. And fruit isn't just for the tree. It's also for others. And I think that idea is important here too. So the more closer you draw to God, the closer and more deeply you are rooted in him, the more mature you become as his plant, the more fruit you bear, then the more Christ you share with people, whether or not you speak it, whether or not you live it, Whatever you do, the more fruitful you are and found in the Lord, then the more that affects those around you. And it says, whose leaf shall not wither. And I was interested in what are the point of leaves? What do they show? If you have a, leaf that is, if you have a tree that is full of leaves and it's green and it looks good, well, leaves help the tree breathe and leaves also help continue to sustain and feed the tree. So this idea, just like fruit, but this idea of leaves that are usually on trees all year long, this idea of sustaining. Sustaining your place planted in the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 4 through 6, talks again about the opposite. The ungodly are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. A tree planted by the rivers of life, that's roots go deep, that is healthy and full and mature, couldn't be knocked over like chaff, like the wind. I mean, it would take a pretty strong wind to knock that over. But chaff, you just blow on it, and it flies away. Those who aren't found in the Lord are like that. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. That means they can't stand before the, uh, the council and, and court of God, the judge. They can't stand before him. The, uh, the righteous can, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly can't even abide for long in the family of God. It's too difficult because they're not rooted and they can't make sense of what's going on around them. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So this first lens, the first half of your glasses for the rest of Psalms is to understand this important point from Psalm 1. Obedience to God leads to your best possible life. And I don't just mean your best possible life someday when you get to heaven or, or when you get back to the new created earth and, and someday in the future. I mean your best possible life today. Obedience to God leads to your best possible life 
today, the most full life, prosperous, full, delightful, fruitful, blessed, happy, joyous life today. And whenever you read the rest of the Psalms, or if you want to go back and start again, whatever you're going to do, read the Psalms through that lens and see how everything that is shared from the heart in each Psalm is pointing and connecting back to that very foundational truth that obedience to God leads to your best possible life. But Psalm 2 is also the second half of the glass the, gla- the pair of glasses, it's the second lens. And so I think it, it seems like if you're, if you're reading this, then the natural question is, oh, okay, okay, that's great for me maybe here, here at church where everybody thinks the same, or, or that's great for my home where everybody thinks the same, or that's great for my group of friends where everybody thinks the same. That's great for Christians with Christians, but this world is broken. This world is evil. This world is actively like those sinners who are trying to get me to walk, stand, and sit with them. This world is actively trying to shift my focus from the Lord, to stop me from obeying God, to do everything it can to get in my way. How does this help me in the long run? How does this help me get to the end goal? This sounds too good to be true. What can I do? Or what is God doing? And that's where we pick up in Psalm 2, I think. Because there's, an, there's a, just this big shift. Psalm 1 was very intimate and personal. And now we shift to something much bigger than ourselves. In Psalm 2, it says this. By the way, the title in my Bible is The Messiah's Triumph in Kingdom. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We've moved from this really intimate, personal reflection on our lives and what we need to prosper before the Lord. And now we've moved to a much more global view of things. Nations, kings, empires, governments, countries, the world at large. The, the focus has shifted. Now, this first uh, few uh, first set of verses, uh, one, two, and three, can't see one, two, and three, are asked in a question, and it's a rhetorical question, and it's kind of like somebody who knows what's going on and is wondering why on earth people are acting the way they're acting when nothing they're going to do is going to accomplish the goal that they want. Why do the nations rage? Why are they trying to get all the power they can? Why do, why do, people, think, why, why do people think that power, wealth, all these other things are what they need to be happy? And if they have the most, then they're in the best position. The psalmist says it's plotting in vain. I don't think if he, was at, if he had anybody specifically in mind and he went and asked them, do you think what you're trying to do isn't going to work? That person would say, yeah, I'm just doing it just because. No, people think that they know. People apart from God think they know how they're going to accomplish their goals in whatever way they deem necessary. And the psalmist is pointing out something that should be a comfort to the people of God in that it's vain. The rhetorical question here is, 
Can they do this? Can the people who reject God, can they ever accomplish what they want to accomplish ultimately? And the answer is no. And it's not just no, but look at what God, how God responds in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, that's God, shall laugh. And the Lord shall hold them in derision. So think of your small child, or big child, your kid, who throws a temper tantrum and not getting their way. Do you sit there and you say, wow, that convinced me. Okay, I see things your way now. You're probably right. No. Parents sit there and say, it, I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know what's best for you. And that's how God is looking at the nations. That's how God is looking at people. That is how God is looking at those who would seek power for themselves and looking and saying, everything you think you're trying to accomplish, I'm in control. And it's a joke to him. It's funny. He laughs. That humans, his creation, would try to overthrow his plans or thwart his will or accomplish their own ends apart from God. And so for the people of God, for that blessed, righteous person, this should be a comfort to you and I. Because imagine being an Israelite living in Babylon. Imagine if you were Daniel who was taken from Israel to Babylon. A young guy who had his life ripped away and hope dashed and then had to learn how to live in a completely other and pagan society. And right off the bat, when we meet Daniel, he's already being put to the test in how he responds and acts to those in authority, those who hold his life in their hands. What comfort Daniel might have gotten from Psalm 2 to know that no matter what Nebuchadnezzar said to him or did to him or commanded of him, God was in absolute control and working no matter what. That changes things. When you know how things are going to end or play out, that changes things. In the middle of a situation that you have no control, or, or no control over and no knowledge of, you're paralyzed by your fear. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Uncertainty and fear are paralyzing but if we know how things are going to play out, if we know what's going to happen, and if we know that our loving Father is in control, doesn't that change how you see what's going on around you? Doesn't that give you hope and the freedom and the ability to live righteously for God? It's supposed to. It's supposed to. So after God laughs at the vain plots of those in this world, then he says this, he shall speak to them in his wrath, this is verse 5, and distress them in his deep displeasure. And then he says this, and this is something very important that would get any Israelite who read it to call back to a very important part of their history. And it says this, yet I have set, this is God speaking, it's in quotations, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And then God goes on and he's saying, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, who's the me? 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The first part of this uh, Psalm 2 was being spoken to us, to the people of God. And then when we get to the end of verse, or when we get to verse 6, then we have this um, window into a conversation up in heaven of God speaking to the anointed one that it referenced a couple verses ago, or to his son, or to me with a capital, or to you with a capital, which would be who? Jesus. God is speaking to Jesus. And who is Jesus? If you're an Israelite, you start to see the connection that God is calling back to 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord makes a covenant with David, and he says, David, greatest king of history, of my, in the history of my people, I promise you today that your throne will never die. I promise you today that your seed will live on. I promise you today that your kid will reign in Israel forever. And I promise you today that anyone who comes after you that's of your bloodline that will rule, that will honor me, I will sustain them forever. And if they sin, I'll correct them and show them mercy and continue to let them reign. David, all your, all your um, heirs have to do is follow me. And, and listen, and, and that story pervades Israel's history. The Israelites are always looking back and looking ahead to the one who would rule the rightful king from the line of David. Well, Jesus obviously fits that criteria. And when God is in heaven and he's talking to Jesus and he's saying, you are the one who is the king that will rule over the entire world, then we can see how God is keeping his promise to David, sending his Messiah, and making sure that everything plays out the way he has decreed. You know, the Lord decreed that Israel would be exiled to Babylon. I mean, I assume there were people in that moment who were being taken away as their families were being slaughtered, thinking, where is God in this? How could he let this happen? But he gave them generations of warnings. And when he finally said, okay, now it's going to happen, it was still generations before it happened. God decreed what would happen to his people. So even in those moments when you're going through suffering, when you're going through times and, and situations where you feel like God is absent or God doesn't care or God has let whatever is going to happen to you happen to you because you didn't please him enough, whenever you're in the middle of that situation, remember this. Nothing happens to you by accident and God is continually working at all times. The second half of the lens that you need to read the Psalms through is this. We need to trust in God's promise. When you read the Psalms, read it this way. Obedience to God brings, leads to my best full life. And I have to trust in God's promise. That tree, if you know how trees, right, takes them a long time to grow. 
takes them a long time to get the roots deep enough. It takes them a long time to be full, mature trees that could stand up to the strongest winds. Following God isn't a sprint, and it's not instantaneous in a lot of ways. It's a marathon. It takes time. It takes obedience, and it takes trust. And it doesn't just take obedience and trust in one situation. It takes obedience and trust in many situations because God wants you to obey him more the next time and trust him more the next time than you did before. And he's written this whole word, and if all you had was the book of Psalms, that was all you would ever need would be 150 chapters in the book of Psalms where he over and over and over again proves that obedience to him leads to your best possible life and trust in his promise will sustain you in the deepest, darkest sorrow. Maybe you've already read it as you've been through nine chapters so far, but you will notice if you read them carefully Usually, especially if it's a lament psalm, there's verse after verse after verse about how terrible everything is and how I feel like I'm on death's doorstep. And then you'll notice, without much fanfare at all, the next set of verses, the perspective is changed. Now, he just spent 10 verses telling me about how terrible his life is, and then the last three verses he tells me, that he knows God will sustain him through that. That's because the roots of that author have grown deep, and that tree is well on its way to being a tree that could never be blown over by water, planted in the life-giving waters of God. Just to end, it says this in verse 10. Now therefore, this is for everyone in power. Everyone not in power, but everyone in power. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Those, nation, those kings and nations who raged against the Lord, listen. God doesn't have to be laughing at you. Instead, you could be honoring him. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judge of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This, I guess if you have glasses and then they have those other lenses that maybe make them, you know, you can get closer and see things more magnified. Maybe these are even better glasses right here. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little. And we started out this um, introduction to the book of Psalms with the word blessed is. And then it says this, blessed are all those who put their trust in God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and to hear from your word. And Father, thank you for the book of Psalms. And I pray, Lord, that as we read these chapters, these poems, Father, that are full of emotion, of huge highs and deep lows, I pray, Lord, that we would remember these two things, that your call in each one is for your people to be obedient and to trust. Father, show us how to do that in our situations, where we are right now today, Father. Whatever comes against us, whatever seeks to take our gaze from you, Father, show us how we can be obedient and trust. Father, thank you that you have shown over and over and over again through your word that you are constantly working, you are active, you care for your people, and you promise to never leave us or forsake us. So, Father, help us to remember that too. 
We thank you and we love you in your name. Amen.